0: ask ronnie have you found any connections to anyone that was associated with the movie
1: inside out i think i have to say that i failed on that front okay you, you, the quest I, is not over it's not over so you know it's like they say to the kids it's a growth mindset one yet
0: yeah that's right so so i'm gandalf and you're Frodo, and i'm telling you you're not done with your journey you never know off to mordor
1: now you've made it sound bad <laughs> I I have a knack for doing that, between
0: sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) That's true, you do. That's true. We can always count on you. So, appreciate that. Appreciate that. Uh, Welcome, everybody, to uh, this episode of Group Thinkers. I'm your host, Justin McFourney. To keep us balanced with despair is Ronnie Richard. Group Thinkers is a podcast from RKD Group. On each and every episode, we have uh, someone who approaches something differently in the nonprofit space. They think about things differently. They've got a type of mindset. And uh, today's guest has a different type of mindset in a few different ways that uh, that we're going to dig into. Dan's honors from Conrad Direct and, uh, and other areas. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, guys.
2: I, I think I've been listening to the podcast since it launched. So I'm a big fan. It's an honor to be here. I guess you could call me a Longtime listener, first time caller. does this count as a yeah. call?
0: Yeah, this yeah this counts as a call. You're you're definitely you're definitely a long time. <laughs> That's one of the ways that you and I got to know each other. Uh, Dan, you're you're the uh, your vice president, Connor, I direct. Uh, you have a uh, uh, play a couple of key roles with the Direct Marketing Association of Washington. Uh, and uh, and also with the Data Strategy Forum, who, which is actually coming up uh, in a, a very short amount of time. So um, I don't want to take away your entire career thunder, but uh, you have all of these various hats of where you land on the uh, nonprofit marketing space. In addition to your own nonprofit marketing podcast, uh, Dynamic Nonprofits with Dan P D. How do you how do you uh DNP?
2: I, I guess, yeah. I guess D- I, I'm still working yeah. on a catchy uh on, on a catchy abbreviation. Maybe uh you guys could help me out with some ideas there. I was looking for I'll some marketing you.
0: tips for the pond. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so Dan's got uh you know, he's got a uh, perspective on multiple different aspects of the industry. And and so we're gonna definitely dig into that today. Dan, we've been talking uh, about the research that RKD put out in the last two tied to, really tied to retention and relationships. More than anything, it's about relationships and how to make them stronger because that plays into retention. And so we're going to dig into some of that down the road and and certainly through your interest on it. But just at the outset, I I would love for you to share with our listening and viewing audience uh, your career path uh, how you, uh, how you've gotten to where you are today and, and touch on some of those very, that you've worn along the way. Sure. I
2: can't wait to dig in here. Like many of us, most of us in this industry, uh, my path into the business was not necessarily planned. It was not a straight line. It was kind of definitely a journey to get there, which is what I think this industry is so interesting. I was born and raised in Northern New Jersey. I uh, went to school at Montclair State University, majored in broadcast communications. Obviously took a different pat- track, but maybe some of that is coming full circle now with the podcast. It's funny how things around. But uh, after school, I had a uh, a six-month uh, stopover in the wedding industry as a wedding videographer, uh, which we can get into a little bit. A lot of unexpected connections to the fundraising world there. But uh, I-, I actually take a marketing-free elective, my junior year, I believe, in college. Uh, it had really sparked my interest, and I had just decided that I was going to uh, finish out my program, get a degree, and was really intrigued about the idea of just a level job at, at a marketing firm and learning the business, working my way up. There was just a lot there that really kind of connected a lot of interests and passions of mine, and I found an ad for Conrad Direct on Craigslist, which uh, I know I have some- me, so you guys know that Craigslist used to be a really good place to go to find quality jobs, and uh, there was an interesting write-up there. It was more or less your standard entry-level marketing ad, but it included a blurb at the end that politics, not necessary, but considered helpful. And that was interesting. I've always been interested in politics and public policy before it was really cool to care about these kinds of things. And uh, knew nothing about the list industry, knew nothing about how Direct Mail ended up, but obviously ended up getting the job and, and just kind of developed um, a really quick passion for helping nonprofit organizations, find new donors, come up with creative lists and data strategies to do that. You know, I've always been a numbers guy. Uh, I'll probably age myself a little bit here, but I used to look forward to the Sunday paper because you would have both the full statistics for the Mets and the Yankees there, and I love just memorizing batting averages and, and the, so it was really a numbers and data guy, and it just kind of married a lot of, uh, passions of mine and, and allowed me to work, uh, with some great causes that I care a lot about. And, uh, I've been fortunate to, uh, work my way up in the industry of vice president Conrad for 15 years, my entirety in the industry and. I'd say, you know, the first 10 years of my journey in the nonprofit sector, I I I gained a, a good reputation in, in my corner of the industry, the clients I worked the list brokerage. But coming into the business when I did, I had an opportunity to attend both uh shows that were oriented towards direct mail and towards digital. And I did a little bit of both uh, I did a little bit on on each side and that perspective because I could see That for one thing, back then, the audiences at these shows were completely unique, but they were often having the same conversations. And I was seeing a lot of things from the digital world that could help direct mail and vice versa. And years ago, I started taking some conversations I was having on the sideline with colleagues about direct mail and digital being viewed more as uh, supporting roles for each other and not necessarily competitors where they're always trying to compete with each other for for And I just decided to kind of put that into action and start publishing original content on LinkedIn, writing some articles that led to uh, the podcast, which has now been downloaded by um, 5,000. And uh, it's just been a really cool experience uh, entering the conversation in the nonprofit space. and. My thing is, is advocating for what I call an unsiloed approach to fundraising, and we could talk a little bit about exactly what that is, but, but essentially allowing different parts of the nonprofit sector and, and our fundraising channels to uh, work together in a coordinated manner. Dan,
1: you mentioned, you, you talk about unsiloed fundraising, and is that, I mean, is it more or less integration and things? Is there more to it? I mean, I've seen you talk about it a lot. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit for us of what that means?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So unsyled fundraising has been a little bit of a journey as well. Um, It really kind of just started off as a a philosophical on different channels of fundraising, working more closely together, doing things like integration, um, multi-channel touch points uh, before and after direct mail appeals. And it's kind of evolved into more of a, a philosophical industry and where I've kind of landed on it is that there's five pillars of unsiloed fundraising. It's direct mail fundraising, digital fundraising, communications, leadership, and uh, programming. And basically the idea internally with departments at nonprofit organizations and externally among vendors, putting stakeholders from these different departments in the same room more often to share the same information so everyone has access to the information and taking more of a approach to fundraising where we're looking for ways to drive the most revenue, not necessarily having each of these departments operating in their own silos and worrying about their bottom lines. And it's, it's something that I've seen real life within the clients that I work with and starting to see more organizations talking about this collaborative approach because as fundraising has grown and become more complex with so many different channels and it's so dynamic, it's really more important than ever for all working together towards a shared goal instead of competing with each other, which can be counterproductive.
0: Yeah, you know, there's something to the the right hand and the left hand knowing what each other's doing, right? And so what I love about you. Your passion and the content that you produce around it, Dan, around unsiloed fundraising, is we've observed that many folks moved away from siloed to siloed collaboration in the last decade, and so siloed collaboration is a space that a lot of people still live, and so it's still that breaking down those walls so that uh, you have the right people together right so that you know we've heard from from various industry experts and colleagues talk about the benefit of having someone from the data team sitting involved in your strategic planning and participating or from your production teams or from your media team that you know strategy isn't one person's job it's a team effort so that everyone has Skin in the game, and uh, and so appreciate your your lean in there because it helps elevate somewhere where we've made progress, but we're definitely not at the end destination. Absolutely, because if you're
2: collaborating but you don't necessarily have shared objectives, it's difficult to implement. It can even be counterproductive. You know, one of the things that we're learning about fundraising is that touch points Along the donor journey, make a big difference in driving conversions on on many different channels, but especially with direct. When you really lean into that and you focus on collaboration, it's a shift in mindset because now you're talking about either the department or even the vendor that is doing um, your display advertising or your search or or your. Uh, You may be saying that we're not focusing as much on you driving revenue. We're focusing more on on you playing a supporting role in the journey for the donors that are are coming up downstream in direct mail. And you you have to have the right culture to make that work, secure that they're not going to be solely judged based on their top line revenue numbers. So there's a lot that that's one of the things that I've discovered as, as I've gone into this journey and talking about on siloed fundraising is that there's a lot more to it than just saying, hey, you need to studies, we have white papers that prove that it works. It really entails a, a cultural shift and requires buy-in from leadership. And, and where I've seen it be successful is organizations where there really is kind of a, a top-down culture of uh, and, and shared goals and not everybody looking out for uh, themselves
0: and their own their own budgets. Yeah. And this is what we talk about when we this is the, the demystification of the idea of donor experience because you're all in it together. That person uh, who is looking to grow their relationship with a nonprofit, that they have the most fluid and enriched opportunity to engage. About uh, this uh, off-air, this is where you did make a brilliant analogy out of your time in the wedding industry. And I would love for you to share that with our teams because it, it paints such a beautiful picture of, of how he accomplished.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And it's really amazing how many parallels there are, but uh, my time in that business really did uh, inspire um, a lot of my philosophy uh, about this collaborative mindset because what it takes to come together and make a wedding happen uh, for those of uh, your listeners who have been married is you have all these different vendors. You have musicians, photography, videographer, flowers, you have venues. And in most cases, there are some companies in the wedding industry that try to do everything. In my experience, there are not many that try to do everything well. In most cases, you have separate vendors who maybe have one, maybe two specialties, and they together together to make this day work. And the other thing that makes the wedding industry very similar to fundraising is that it's highly commoditized. So no matter what you do, there's a lot of other people in your marketplace that and it's very hard to distinguish yourself. Now, how do vendors distinguish themselves? Well, some try to compete on price, but others compete on the concept of added value to their customers and helping make value for their customers. And that's a, a very important direction that I do see that the fundraising space going, uh, here's a, a couple of, of simple examples. If you're a limo driver, you know, getting couples to and from the church seems like a rather transaction. but what if you're the limo driver who gives a variety of tip on. The, the right way to step out of the limo so that the photographer can capture that moment as you're stepping out and looking up at your church for the first time. Um, your know, limo drivers, they've hundreds, even thousands of weddings and they have this knowledge, even though they're not photographers, they understand, um, the advice to share to help capture that magic moment. Think about what you've created then for that couple. Then you've allowed them to preserve this, this moment that forever. Um, that's so much more than just the transactional relationship of, of driving people around. Another thing I learned, you know, from from my father, who was a wedding photographer, that's how I got into video initially. Was he used to always help uh, the groom's nears? I don't know about you guys, but I'm terrible at that. I always end up stabbing myself, or the flower ends up crooked. And and that little touch—it's just like a little simple thing that you could do to make the couple's stay easier and smoother. And those are the kinds of things that remember and hang on to when they're referring you to their friends and family. By the same extension, when you're in the wedding business, you get asked for referrals all the time. So if you do, if you're a photographer, you're going to get asked, hey, do you know anyone that you refer to flowers? And maybe you don't specialize in flowers, but maybe you've learned uh, enough about it. That you can provide some tips in talking to flower vendors and refer them to um, quality people who you know and trust. Work in developing those relationships so that you can be confident in the people that you're referring those services to. So it's not something that you provide. Maybe you have a commission-based relationship for referrals with that vendor. Maybe you don't. But the fact that you're taking time, that valuable connection is what that couple is going to hold on to. That's what they're going to remember. And it just makes that extra special impression that distinguishes you from other people who have just a strictly transactional relationship with their client. Really where I see the fundraising space going, because there were so many channels now, and it is so dynamic, very few companies do everything. And even full service agencies usually have something that they have to rely on outside partners for, so having that. Uh, To be able to at least add some quality perspective and information for your clients, I I find to be very super important, as well as having the ability to make those connections. Because my philosophy about this, and this you're working internally at a nonprofit and you get asked a question about something that you don't do every day, or you work externally as a vendor, is that every time you say, I don't know, you give up your seat at your table. And whether we're working or we're working as a supporting vendor, the goal should always be to make our seat, to maintain our seat, to make it as valuable and as impressionable as possible. And we can do that by offering added value and knowledge about things we don't provide directly and helping for. Complementary services. So those are the parallels that I see, um, you know, between the wedding business and the direction that I,
1: I believe the fundraising industry is going in. That's so well said, Dan. Um, ultimately, it's all about making the groom having, making sure that they have such a great experience, right? And I'm thinking about like our study that we just did called "Listen Up," where we were trying to find out like what drives these stronger relationships with donors and. Similar, it's about creating this better experience for them. And the donors said that they they want better communication, really want to be heard. They want nonprofits to listen to them, which is why we kind of called it "listen up." I'm curious where are we as a nonprofit industry doing this well, and where you know where could we improve a little bit? In that, from what I've seen.
2: Nonprofits who have, uh, particularly larger ones that have taken in from the commercial sector, there are some that are doing this well. I've seen a few, uh, I know I saw a presentation from, uh, Greenpeace, um, a few years ago about how they had this very unsiloed approach to buddy had access to the same information and, and tracking donor journeys and how touch points impacted donor value. Um, where I see that it's still kind of breaking down and there's a lot of inertia, it it really kind of we have all of these seemingly competing interests. And this can be if you have people inside your nonprofit who don't talk to each other very often and where the communication staff thinks that fundraising is a completely different animal thing to do with. How many nonprofits do we know that The social media pages are viewed as communication vehicles because they don't drive a lot of revenue, but the conversations that are being had on those social media pages, I find to be like mining direct response for determining what donors are enthusiastic about, what they're unhappy about, quality of the relationship that they have with the organization. There's so much valuable intelligence there. Likewise, if you're a direct response fundraiser, Asian folks know what excites donors to give so that they they can complement that in their messaging so that's an example of, of internal inertia where you know sometimes parties view themselves as competing with each other or they just have never been told that they have the same goals the same interests you know it can be scary entering the direct response world if you work in communications and all of a sudden now by revenue, whereas you weren't before. So part of that has to do with leadership uh, creating a culture of collaboration where people feel safe and encouraged to work together towards shared goals. Um, the other side of it is of vendors. Um, part of the issue is what I was talking about before, and you know when we go to shows, we tend to uh, want to enhance our day-to-day specialty, which is understandable, but. Cross-channel education, I believe, is more valuable than ever right now we do as an industry so that you know direct mail fundraisers can have their eyes opened about the power that digital communication has to enhance what they do. A lot of the things in your study, what's interesting to me is that someone who 90% of what I do day to day is a lot of the things that are going to strengthen the bond with donors and allow them to have a better relationship are very difficult to scale through direct mail. So I believe direct mail fundraisers have an extremely vested interest in the quality that donors are getting once they come in the door. And how do you break down the silos between those companies and get them to talk more and to collaborate with each other? You know, how do you get companies that primarily digital to understand that they can increase their value by? increasing the retention rate and lifetime value of direct mail donors. I mean, one of the things we we pretty much know conclusively at this point is that if you send emails, any mail donors, it increases their lifetime value. It increases their retention. I learned that about 12 years ago from a client that didn't even have a formal, formal email program, that just them supplying an email address um, made them more valuable. What's that? Is that a lot of it's just happening incidentally, right? Donors are just kind of getting thrown into the email program with anyone, everyone else. But what if we started customizing email content for what donor uh, direct mail donors were coming in on or create programs specifically for direct mail donors? There's just so much more that we can do there to optimize that experience. And in, in order for that to happen, there has to be a breaking down of the silos. Part of that's on the individual uh, vendor level where we have to, We have to make the commitment to uh, crossing the streams with each other. But a lot of it does start internally with leadership at nonprofit organizations creating this culture where not only is collaboration
0: expected, but it's something that's revised as well. I love uh, the idea that collaboration should be expected. Uh, and, And two anecdotes that come to mind as you're sharing that. One, it's a very simple behavior that Ronnie and I see from one of my colleagues that she will constantly use the phrase "plusing," And so she'll have an idea and then she'll put it to a handful of people and, and basically lob with the expectation of, hey, Ronnie, I know you're going to plus. Meaning I'm putting this out there because I feel like I've done kind of as far as I can take it right now. I need someone else to help lean in, add to this and help. Build it and make it better and better and better. And I think that that's a a, a real that uh, that folks could adopt more often. The second is something that I heard from uh, an organization that we worked with with organization that we're working with, where recently they had a new hire come in whose role is overseeing all digital channels from the marketing and fundraising side. But there's someone who is also overseeing direct response, and kind of the annual fund. Now, there's a collision within there. Like there's this vendor. And, uh, and so our primary day-to-day contact over the direct response side uh, shared with me, I own the revenue goal. The revenue goal is my goal. But this person that has come in that owns the digital you know, the digital us, they have a vested interest in the revenue goal. And just that little slight twist makes all the difference because it sets up this expectation of collaboration and that, uh, that we can rise the tide, which is going to, you know, lift all boats. So, Dan, what, what's stopping us? It's also logical. There's data points that are now more than a decade old. We're continuing to get more data points around it. Some organizations are making ships are the biggest barriers from uh, seeing this as a unsiloing, as a mass movement. I think that's to be a broken
2: record. I, I think it starts with leadership and also an acceptance that, you know, the, the non- is based on generosity, which is, is a wonderful thing. So we tend to think, well, you know, because that we, we don't like to think that we have cultural issues that that need to be resolved because you know the basis for this business is something that good but kind of leaning into the fact that people looking out for themselves is something that is relatively natural and unless there's a culture which creates an expectation of collaboration and people to, to drop their egos you know we want you to test something where you're not going to be the driver of revenue um, really quick example as a direct mail fundraiser I'm really excited about the potential for connected television to direct mail results. But how does that conversation starts where a CTB test isn't necessarily about driving revenue? It's about trying to boost another channel and establishing its own unique value by doing that. And I think that all starts with things are expected and nonprofits investing in things like team building exercises and Getting people who don't normally talk into the same room—you know this sounds so simple, guys. But the first guess, whenever somebody says, "You know, how well where do we begin?" It's having an all hands on deck beating where you get all the stakeholders into the room, and that's where I come up with the five pillars. Is I think these are the five departments that you need to have together. I mean, we haven't really talked a lot about programming, uh, so you have to unpack here. But you know, programming is the work product for fundraising and. Yeah, that's why f- direct response fundraisers should be talking to programming to know what's coming down the pike. Programming should be talking to the direct response team to understand what excites the donors that they didn't have on the calendar for next year that they should be doing more of because they know it's something that the donors value a- and putting everybody into the same room, you know, once a month, once a quarter, whatever's practical. And I, I can, I can hear the eye rolls when I'm seeing because nobody wants another meeting just for the sake of having a meeting. And I, I totally understand that. And I'm empathetic to that. And, and I think the way that you make those meetings productive is how they're structured, is you tell everybody that's coming, this is not a CYA meeting. We don't want to hear about your personal achievements, your department's goals, and how you fared. The idea is to come here and share information that could be useful for the group. And you just kind of change the perspective. And I think that's how you start that cultural shift where everything isn't just about reporting your own goals and your own objectives. It's about sharing information that could be helpful to others. But I really think it begins with putting everybody in the same room. And then from there, expanding out and having an annual meeting with all of your fundraising vendors. Um, and the same thing is they talk about what they're doing, but the idea is to share information, uh, to make everybody better at what they do, to make the organization stronger collectively. and to foster collaboration. But I think that's, that's, that's where it all begins. Same room with a shared, unselfish objective.
0: You know, it's, uh, it's funny. I've, I've been a part of so many of those types of meetings and, and I can tell you that there is a stark difference based off of the expectations set from an organizing party. And so that difference can be, it either becomes a sandbox where everyone plays well together. Or it becomes a coliseum where everyone is drawing swords, whether or not you see sword drawn or. Right. I, I appreciate that expectation setting and really making collaboration a cultural milestone and, and mark for the way that you work with your partners is the first step because we all know it's going to be a better experience for donors and therefore a better relationship just going to increase their generosity. Therefore your KPIs are going to go up. And so it's these little but challenging things up front. Dan, I, you know, just as we have our time today, uh, you know, I just I want to make sure and 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 draw attention for our listening audience. The, you know, the amount of things that you do that help force this sort of collaboration. And so, you know, you're with the data strategy forum of helping transition that away from a siloed singular event into an event that focuses on all aspects of how data is used for nonprofit marketing. You know, the content that you produce nonprofits, uh, the podcast is available uh, on Apple and it's on Spotify and various other places where you can find it you know, we just appreciate that you're someone who is walking the walk whenever it comes to trying to expectation for collaboration. And so thanks for, for all you're doing on that aspect, man. It's it's real stuff.
2: Well, I, I appreciate that a lot. And um, everyone is free to reach out to me on, on LinkedIn. Um, you could email me at Conrad Direct if you'd like. But yeah, I'm just looking to fundraisers who are doing interesting things that have bold ideas and just talking about this business because it is so dynamic and and something that I care about a lot and uh, have been trying to get back to and implementing some of these ideas through uh, the DMAW and put out a word of advice to, to listeners. If there's any young professionals or even you know not so young professionals that have been doing this for a long time and holding on to ideas, uh, I appreciate the kind words, uh, Justin. Um, but I wish that I had started engaging in thought leadership. I, that I did. It's it's one of the best things that I've I, I've ever done, and especially with LinkedIn, the marketplace is really open to everyone. and And I know there are so many interesting and exciting fundraisers out there that have a lot of ideas. Maybe some things that, buck- and I, I just I can't encourage them enough to get involved, start putting your ideas out there on LinkedIn, and and you can certainly start to crawl. But um, your ideas have value, and the marketplace needs more contributors. So. I encourage anyone who's been thinking about holding on to some ideas like I was for a while to take the leap and get involved. It's totally worth it.
0: That's awesome. Uh, it's uh, very, very well said. Dan, thanks for the time today. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, as always, folks want to check out any other episodes. They're available uh, on basically anywhere that you listen to things and and now thanks to Ronnie's Magic. They're also available on YouTube so that you can watch them. And uh, and so uh, all, all sorts of other content available We appreciate you checking out this episode, checking out our time with Dan today. And so thanks. We'll see you next time. See you down the road. Group Thinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more, rkdgroup.com slash podcast. Special thanks to our production team, including the talented Ryan Mellinger for his work on mixing every episode. Also a shout out to the content team that helps pull together research and guests, but it's behind group thinkers, Suzanne, Ronnie and others for their work on this and every episode of Group Thinkers.